Welcome back to Documentary First, an inside look and a documentary filmmaker's journey. I'm your host, Jason Rugg, joined as always by Christian Taylor. Hey, Jason. Good to see you. Good to see you. And we're just going to jump right into it because we actually have a phenomenal guest with us today, uh, Ken Burns. Welcome. Welcome, Ken. Thank you. Great to be with you. Um, so here's a quick intro uh, for Ken Burns, in case you don't know him somehow. If you've listened to this podcast, we, we've talked about his work a lot. So uh, Ken Burns has been making documentary films for almost 50 years. Since the Academy Award nominated Brooklyn Bridge in 1981, Ken has gone on to direct and produce some of the most acclaimed historical documentaries ever made, including The Civil War, Baseball, Jazz, The War, The National Parks, America's Best Idea, Prohibition, The Roosevelts, An Intimate History, The Vietnam War, Country Music, the U.S. and the Holocaust, and today's topic, the American Buffalo. And that is just to name a few. (laughs) I have to tell you guys that I have in my, uh, in my house, I live, I've lived in New Hampshire for the last 44 years of making those films. And I have an old and now faded New Yorker cartoon that shows three men standing in hell, the flames licking up around them. And one guy says to the other two, apparently my over 200 screen credits didn't mean a damn thing. And of course, they don't. <laughs> oh, that's so they, wise. Yeah. In the big uh, picture, actually, I made a copy of it and I brought it uh, down here. And 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 when I'm when I'm in New York, uh, and and just remind myself to. That wow. that is such a humble way, I think, to look at all of our work because I think it's really true. In the big picture of things, uh, what we do does not necessarily last. I think it's who we are. Yeah, it's exactly. Uh, And that's what matters as we live and work with our families and our teams. And, um, you know, I live in a tiny town in New Hampshire where all the Emmys and the nominations and the this and the that plus 50 cents get you a cup of coffee and they're more interested in who you are in terms of character than, you know, what the resume is burdened with. Exactly. Uh, One of the things that uh, really changed my life. I mean, uh, it is so incredibly humbling for me to have you here. We have talked about you from the beginning of this podcast. I'm so sorry for getting emotional. I told myself I would not do this, (laughs) but it's true. I would not be sitting here doing this podcast. I would not have completed my film if it was not for you. And I am not alone as filmmakers that would say that. Um, It's true for so many um, over the course of your career, um, how you've taught us and inspired us. And one of those humble things that you said, when I first thought of the idea of making a documentary, I thought, how hard can it be? I went to so many producers and they said, well, yeah, you should tell that story. And I was like, okay, well, you know, ignorance is bliss. How hard can it be? (laughs) And I was sat down to try to figure it out. And I thought, how do I do this? And I looked online and I went to masterclass and I took your masterclass. (laughs) And all I needed to do was watch the introduction. That's it. Because it gave me such hope. I mean, at that time I was trying to raise money. And I remember you saying, I had these two binders on my desk of rejections rejections hundreds of for one short hour film the first one brooklyn bridge you know and and it just was there just say you think you you know you think you're this it's it's so hard to make a film and then even if you get the money that's it's even harder to make a film Mm -hmm. (laughs) once you got it you're like oh my goodness now i have to do this i've I've caught the tiger now what am i going to do with it exactly and then from there you said um and these things really shaped me um two things one was as a producer 
you, your job is to solve a million problems and then solve a million more. Right. It is, it is, you are in the business of solving those problems, whether it's in story or whether it's in production. Um, and the, and the important thing is not to see problems in a pejorative sense, as we, in our daily life, speak of problems as something pejorative, but actually the necessary and, and I would say required friction in order to create something or to order to express something or to do something, whatever it might be. So the important thing is not just the perseverance to overcome the, the problems, but to see problems, to welcome them, to see them as the inevitable part and process of, of trying to do what we try to do. Well, and as you say, problems make the people if we see them that way. I think they refine us as humans. They, when we can overcome them, they make us realize, okay, I have a little more fortitude than I thought. Yeah. Um, but it pushes us further, I think. And that is what I, I learned from you that you just, it, you said at some point, just keep going. Yeah. No film school will teach you how to make a film. You have to just do it and don't quit. Right. Yeah, they're, they're techniques and the, there's lessons that can be learned, but actually it just comes down to putting one foot in front of the other and going forward because the inevitable problems, the inevitable vicissitudes, this, the big serious things are going to come up and you just have to figure out, you know, how to, how to, you know, what I used to say is like bite off more than I could chew and then learn how to chew, you know, <laughs> and then that was, that was the <laughs> mantra for years and years and years. And now I just foolishly add more and more films to work on at the same time, like the guy on Ed Sullivan adding more plates to spin, you know, and then you go, at some point you got to go, what am I doing? But I'll give you a hint. I am so greedy for the creative process. I, mm -hmm. There's nothing, well, there are a few personal things, but there's nothing like making a film better, you know? And even if you wake up the next day and go, boy, that sucked, you know, <laughs> and then change it. Even, <laughs> even having the courage to say that sucked after you were certain, you know, and working with people, it's such a gloriously collaborative process as much as it at times makes you feel really lonely. You know, you're as good as the people you work with. It's, it's yeah. a wonderful thing. We're going to get into that because you have some amazing people. Um, I remember, I don't know if you've seen it, this diagram of the creative process where it goes like, this is great. And then, oh my gosh, this is horrible. And well, maybe I can do this. You know, and it kind of just goes like that over and over again. And till finally, like, maybe I did it, you know, right. <laughs> it's just like this ride, you know? Yeah. It's, it's a glorious one too. Yeah, so I want to jump into a question that Jason, Jason came to our conversation a little bit before you came here saying, this is really what I want to know. And I did too, um, because you tell these vast stories, um, very expansive, but yet you make them feel incredibly personal. And as I was reading your own personal history, uh, I do think it might go back to your origin story and maybe yeah. what your father-in-law said to you at one yeah. point. And yeah. I really would love for you to unpack that for our listeners. Well, I, I think it's very important. No matter how big the topic, you can't just do it from 30,000 feet. There has to be a kind of bottom-up component in which you personalize it. The English romantic poet William Blake said you could find the world in a grain of sand. 
Mm. And we do notice that the architecture of the atom is similar to the architecture of the solar system. And so I think there are ways in which you can approach story and the structuring of story in which you don't abandon a connection that makes anybody, no, how, no matter how vast the subject is, feel connected because it has an individual life tethered to it in, in, an, in an intimate and, and, and important way. So I grew up in a sad situation. My mom got cancer when I was two or three. I never had a moment of consciousness where I did not know that something bad was about to happen. And she died when I was 11, a few months short of my 12th birthday. And afterwards, um, my father, who was a big movie fan and had a strict curfew, would let me stay up on nights to watch movies. And <laughs> I watched him cry. And he'd never cried when she was sick or when she died or at her sad funeral. And friends had remarked on this. And I knew there was a criticism. I felt defensive of my dad, but I had noticed that. And... Um, when I watched him cry at a movie, I just thought, that's what I want to do. I want to be a filmmaker. So 12, a few months after my mom died, I, I kind of had that calling in the best sense of the word. But, you know, I did the same as my dad. I sort of buried stuff. And many years later, I noticed that the anniversary of her death was approaching and then receding. I could never be present. And I was now like close to 40. Mm. And... I remember telling my late father-in-law, who was an eminent psychologist, that I couldn't do that. And then he said, oh, I bet you blew out the candles on your birthday cake wishing she'd come back. And I go, how you know? And then he, he'd, he'd say three or four other things that I did, too, as a, as a boy and as a teenager. And I said, well, what's going on? He said, well, look what you do for a living. I said, what do you mean? He said, you wake the dead. Hmm. Make Abraham Lincoln and Jackie Robinson come alive. Who do you think? you're really trying to wake up. And I, I, we can say it's not dinosaur psychology because it's coming from an eminent psychologist. But I do think that this tragic event was defining for me. I would not be sitting with you had not my mother died. Her gift in a bizarre way is having died and having transformed me. I mean, I was anxious and worried and everything leading up to the time and and kind of buried a lot of that for a while until it was unburiable but i but i dealt with it and a lot of my work and i said it before i'd ever done work on myself that it was emotional archaeology it wasn't just excavating dry dates and facts of the past it was something that's not nostalgia not sentimentality that's the enemy of good anything but it had to do with an emotional higher emotions that we sometimes bury we'd sometimes rather be, everything be really neat and one and one always equal two but that actually the things that we value in our lives is when one and one equals three so i've been interested in whatever that the emotional analogy is to that about about finding that and then it all goes back and my mother's name was lila l-y-l-a uh, her mother was and born in the 19th century also named lila and for years since 1965 april 28th we, you know, that name was draped in black crepe. And then my oldest daughter, who of course never met her grandmother, named her first child, who was born in 2011, nearly 13 years ago, um, Lila. And now we say it every day. And so mm -hmm. there's been a kind of a lot of healing, but I don't think we've lost this curiosity of how you resurrect the past, how you treat the people who are gone, not with the arrogance that we in the present always impose on them. That is to say, 
we're here, you're not, we know more than you. We don't. There were conversations going on 5,000 years ago that were much more deep and profound than any we will get in today because those people were more deep and profound. Um, and so we have to sort of remove that arrogance and extend to people in the past, not a one-dimensional, oh, that's a good guy, oh, that's a bad guy, she's, you know, this, she, that. It's to see people that have dimension and that they can actually grow and move or shrink and contract. And that, the essence of willing the past alive, either in a photograph or, or, or um, sound effects or music or narration complemented by first-person voices so that you have a sense of how people spoke that's maybe anachronistically different than how we speak today, but about emotions that are exactly the same. So if all of that kind of goes into a big stew that allows you to kind of tell stories, I think without that arrogance of, you know, I'm just going to use this to make a score a political point. Politics is so binary and so superficial. It's everything, you know, it's red state or blue state, young or old, gay or straight, rich or poor, whatever it is. And none of that really exists in nature. It's always something in, in motion. And if you can capture that motion, you can capture the complexity, the undertow, then you're there. I mean, we, we have a sign that's been up there for years and years and neon sign in lowercase cursive that says it's complicated in the editing room, the main editing room, because you want people, you know, you're filmmakers, you know, if you've got a scene that's working, you really don't want to touch it. But in my job, I find contradictory information all the time and you have to touch it. And I've spent nearly 50 years sort of going, okay, let's make it, you know, going in and adding that thing that, you know, either takes away from somebody or gives to somebody. And that somebody might be Abraham Lincoln. You know, you're finding out that he wanted to recolonize all black people to South America or Africa as late as April of 61. That's when the Civil War started. Ouch. Yep. Got to put it in or, or gives, you know, that you begin to find out that this kind of ambitious and, and kind of playboy, you know, guy is stricken with infantile paralysis, which usually happens when you're a kid, but at 39 years old, and he never walks again unaided. And he is able to lift us out of the depression and the second world war. I'm speaking of course of FDR, but I mean, those are famous boldface names, but I can tell you, you know, people who landed at Normandy who did not have a, uh, have a real stake in it other than ideas. Like they weren't getting territory. There was no financial reward. They were doing it because of ideas. You know, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who's a housewife, you know, married with kids who articulates in America, the most essential principles of feminist equality that have ever been expressed. I'm so glad you unpacked that because I think that what you said reveals that deep well that I have always seen in you because I think your heart is laid bare in all of your films that way. And I think as filmmakers, what I hear you saying is that it is incredibly important to bring our own history and be very vulnerable when we tell our stories. And, and I, you know, as I look back at my own work with The Girl Who Wore Freedom, at some point in the beginning, it dawned on me that my son Hunter, who was the reason the whole story began, I would not have had that story without him. And yet there was a time where I was married. I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't married and I was pregnant and I was looking to have an abortion. And it was the most painful moment that I ever had. 
And yet I looked in the mirror and I said, I want to live what I say I believe. And I want to give this child life. And I want, I want to take responsibility for that no matter how hard it is. And in that painful choice gave me life and changed my life, not only at that moment, but here, you know, 35 years later. And I do think what I hear you saying is we must bring all of those joys and pains to our work, um, you know, and be vulnerable and relate with our subjects. Well, you know, I think that's right. I think at least in the kind of emotional archaeology that I'm involved in, it sounds like that you're involved in, that that's true. You know, my friend Werner Herzog, who makes unbelievable documentaries, once turned to me on a panel and said, you know, I am interested in an ecstatic truth. And my friend Ken is interested in an emotional truth mm. to Michael Moore. And he said, you're interested in a physical truth, you know? And so you begin to realize there's lots of ways. And Tolstoy said that art is the transfer of emotion from one person to another. I, I fully believe that you cannot communicate unless you're willing to also bear some of that emotional mm -hmm. stuff. And then I think we've spent too much of our lives, whatever our job is, including documentary filmmakers, trying to make things be okay, you know, kind of the simplest, the path of least resistance, comfortable, the equivalent of a gated community. We want, we want things to run well and smoothly, but it's in fact the times when they don't, when our world is upended, that we actually have the possibility for some kind of growth and then perhaps the possibility to share the, the, the sort of mechanics and, and um, pain as well as the understandings that issue from that in our, in our own work. And so it's, it, it, it's humility is an important part. Being honorable is an old 19th century word that doesn't really get applied much today, but all of these uh, principles are hugely important, I think, to, to the, to whatever alchemy it is. Yeah. And I love what you said previously about it being complicated and how that's a sign in your editing room, because that brings us to the story that we're here to talk about today. And that's your work that's premiering um, on PBS on October 16 and 17, The American Buffalo. It is a four hour remarkable series uh, that I recommend everybody watch. It, it was transformative to me. And I want to say how important it is that you watch both. I mean, they are long and you are well known for doing these long stories. Um, I believe it's almost two hours each episode. Uh, but the second episode is vitally important as, you know, as well as the first. And throughout that entire thing, I'm going to be honest with you and reveal my ignorance and stupidity and sadness is that when I first saw that you were doing the American Buffalo, I thought, how in the world can anybody do a four hour series on the American Buffalo and it be interesting? I mean, we know that they were here in droves and then they disappeared and it was largely our responsibility. And now we're trying to bring them back. And I'm like, how complicated can that be? <laughs> and then I began to watch and I, my mind was blown by what I didn't know. Yeah. Uh, I was just, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe how complicated it was. And I, I just was blown away by the fact that you don't judge us and you don't erase history. Now you do tell the truth. 
And so sometimes that may come across to some people as judging, but not in a harsh way. It is saying, this is who we are, our good, our bad, our neutral. And I think we need to embrace that and accept it. And I think what I love with the second episode is that you call us to be our best selves. You show us how people are starting to do that. So it sets an example for how we can do that. And so I'd love for you just to talk more about that. Yeah, well, that's an interesting point. We sort of saw this two-part series as the first two acts as we were finishing up of a three-act play. And that third act play is, what are you going to do now? You've saved the buffalo. It's no longer going extinct. That's not a problem. It's a great parable of de-extinction after descending pretty low into the dynamics, which we'll get into, of our slaughter. Um, but do you just want a zoo animal? Do you just want a corral animal? Or do you want a bison back where they were, wild and free? And what kind of commitments could you make to helping create the ecosystems and the habitats that would make that possible? So there's a kind of sense that there is something to be written by all of us if we choose to read it. You don't have to. The film's not polemical. It's just saying this is what it was. But let's go back and say what it was. There were at least at the beginning of the 19th century, 35 million buffalo. There probably had been 70 before Columbus, but pressures and contact with the outside world put market pressures initially on, on the buffalo, which was used by native people for 10,000 years as, as, as all of their subsistence, everything. And they used everything from the tail to the snout. They even used the snort, which was worked into their rituals. Um, they used the waste for fires, everything. When you were born, you were swaddled in a buffalo blanket. When you were died, you were shrouded in a buffalo blanket. And every part of the animal was used for tools or weapons or whatever it might be. Um, and that, and they were they were revered. In in return for killing them, as we say, they revered them. And the buffalo became part of many native tribes' sort of central creation myth. And and for some tribes on the plains, the central story of their myth, the Kiowas, for example, believe creation starts when the buffaloes walk out of a mountain in the Wichita Mountains in what is now Oklahoma. Um, into this came white European, white Americans who ex exerted the greatest market pressure so that by the end of the Civil War in the middle of the 19th century, there's at least 15 million bison. That's a lot of bison. And within 20 years, they're gone. Um, turns out their leather would make supple belts to run the machines of the Industrial Revolution. Leather was the fifth largest industry. And so we sent hide hunters by the thousands out to just kill the buffalo for their hides by the millions. And they just stripped the hides off and took them back, leaving 800 pounds of meat to, to rot the bones, the head, the horns, the hoofs, just the, the place was a stinking wrench, wretched smell of an odor that people described. And the native peoples there were saying, you know, killing the buffalo is the end of history for us. So imagine, is the way TV dramas sometimes do, some supernatural thing in which all of our commissaries, all of our grocery stores, and all of our churches and mosques and synagogues disappeared. 
you know, where would be, we be left? And that's essentially what we did to the Native people. And it was, as one of the Native American scholars said in the film, a twofer, you know? You killed for the, for the market stuff, for your leather to run the Industrial Revolution, but you killed the Native American. You killed the buffalo, killed the Indian. And that Americans wasn't written policy, but it was articulated policy from the highest levels to the army, to businessmen, to whatever, that you would make the Native Americans at least docile, if not kill them. And it, it's, it's the largest slaughter of wildlife in the history of the world. It's other animals like elk and grizzly that are happening in the 19th century too. But the largest slaughter of wildlife in the history of the world is on us. And it had this concurrent devastating effect on native people. So back up 30 years, we wanted to do a biography of the, of the buffalo. And it wasn't a joke because we do lots of biographies, you know, maybe a couple dozen of them. And, and our big series are also the constituent building blocks are more often than not biography. So we just knew that if you did the Buffalo, you'd be doing 10 to 12,000 years, 600 generations of experience that native people had in a sustainable fashion with this animal. It's a much better meat, much healthier meat than cattle, um, than cows. And, uh, and then the story of the people who have maybe six generations who then severed this. There are now, you know, if you take away your commissary and your church, the trauma is beyond belief. And it's only now separated after 150 years or 200 or 250 years. In the case of some tribes, the farther off you get from the Great Plains, because the Buffalo were Sea to Shining Sea. The second largest city in New York is not named Buffalo for nothing. You know, <laughs> the Jamestown settlers went up the Potomac exploring and found a huge herd in what is now Washington, D.C. Um, you know, it's just they've been there. And, and they got confined by the beginning of the 19th century, and they're still in the tens and tens of millions. And we still managed to bring them this close, fewer than a thousand, most of them in zoos and in private collections, and some maybe fewer than 200 roaming wild and free. We just don't know a few dozen in Yellowstone and other places where hunters hadn't gotten to them, and there were already poachers there. And so it's this horrible tragedy. And then suddenly a variety of people, some of them for the wrong reasons of racism and white supremacy and, and nationalism decide we have to save the buffalo. And the conservation movement is born for a lot of competing reasons, including the desire to continue to hunt in a sustainable fashion. And it's, it's, it's such a complicated and such a fascinating story. And for I'm glad we waited 30 years. We've done stuff on the buffalo in the national parks uh, film. We've done Lewis and Clark. We've done it in the West in the mid-90s. But Waiting this long permitted us to, I hope, be better filmmakers for the scholarship to improve, but also for us to have the ability to just center Native American experience. It is not just paying lip service. It is not just saying, oh, and there are other points of view. It is not just a kind of paternalistic, even patronizing view. It's saying these people have experience for 10, 12,000 years. We do not. Tell us what you know about this animal, about the story, about what's going on. And so it privileges, to use the, the, the modern term, Native American viewpoints. But it, it just allows, you know, even characters that don't go far enough. TR is still probably a racist and a white supremacist, even though he moves from like, okay, the buffalo is going to go extinct. That's not too bad, Theodore Roosevelt, to let's save the buffalo, right? Others like William T. Hornaday, who's the chief taxidermist for the Smithsonian, is out killing them, then says, maybe that's not a good idea. Starts the National Zoo and the Bronx Zoo, 
that's all good, but probably never loses. We know never loses his animus towards native peoples. Mm -hmm. And then there are people like Charlie Goodnight, who's a Texas Ranger, Indian fighter, Indian killer, Buffalo killer, whose wife asks him to save some Buffalo. They have a herd. He repairs his relationships with native people and he make goes a long distance. Buffalo Bill goes a long distance, you know. Uh, Michelle Pablo, who's got the largest private herd in the country up near the Blackfeet Reservation in Montana, Northwest Montana, is a great story. So you begin to realize it's going to take everybody to do it, and not everybody's going to do it for the right reasons, you know. And it, you don't excuse them. Being a eugenicist, which is that pseudoscience that says, I never thought the last film we do is the U.S. and the Holocaust, and eugenics played a big part because it convinces people to be anti-Semitic and racist and anti-immigrant and whatever. It basically postulates that you could create a hierarchy of races, of ethnicities, and even nationalities, which is incredible bunk. There's only one race. That's the human race. Everybody's the same. Everybody's equal. And, you know, all of our problems come out of not having communication between equals. So this was an attempt to just sort of look at all of this stuff and obviously have to unbelievably so go back into eugenics. The key maybe is that in 1913, we come out with an Indian head nickel and on the backside is a buffalo. We know the Native American it's modeled after. We know the buffalo that is modeled, you know, Black Lightning, who was then sent down to the meat packing district in Manhattan and killed, slaughtered, and parted out for steaks and parts. And, um, and you begin to realize that here we are suddenly, they're now the symbols of the United States. Like the, 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 the sculptor, Frazier, said, I wanted to design a coin in which it would not be mistaken for the, of the, the coin of any other country. So what does he pick? He picks a Native American head and a buffalo. And this now means us. So we're now romanticizing, even fetishizing, two entities that we've spent the last century trying to eliminate. And it prompts George Horsecapture Jr., who's one of the more potent Native American speakers in the film, to comment. He says, I just have to ask you a question. Do you need to destroy what you love? So at the heart of that question, and many others, he and others ask in the film, makes this story not just, oh, yeah, they're buffalo. I didn't really realize how they nearly were extinct. And isn't it good that they're back, which is you know, a 30-second film, how how difficult it was to cut it down to four hours. And and as people tell us and have seen it, they've wept throughout it, and particularly at the end where there is so much redemptive reconciliation spirit on the part of Native Americans, even to us who perpetrated this tragedy, not just on their animal, but on them and their livelihoods and their religion. How And how much active work is going on today. It's just a great great story and i'm just glad we waited yeah you know i that is a beautiful summary of of your film your film series and i'm so glad you brought that quote up about george horse capture i wrote it right down i was gonna ask you to give it myself so he's uh, from a small tribe called the anani a a n i i i h and they're in north central montana there, the, his people are on, and he is on the Fort Belknap uh, reservation, and they're around Buffalo now. And now we can say that the Inner Tribal Buffalo Council, 80 different tribes have herds of buffalo, and they are actually then helping other tribes, re, what's called rematriation, bringing 
bringing buffalo back to tribes that have been separate. And there's our, our, our one of our producers, Juliana Branham, who is a Comanche and related to another character that I didn't bring up, uh, Quanah Parker, um, just had made a, a small film called Homecoming that's so beautiful and moving. And it shows Jason Baldes, who's on the Shoshone Reservation, the Wind River Reservation in Wyoming, rematriating Buffalo all the way to Wisconsin to the Menominee. And it's like they look at each other in the eyes and it's like, where have you been? It's just, yeah. it's like Odysseus coming back from the Trojan Wars. It's like, what? yeah, where have you been? Both people, Buffalo, as well as the, 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 the people, the humans that are seeing it. Yeah, so beautiful. I mean, the people that you interviewed from the historians to the Native Americans to uh, just, I mean, everyone in the film is so articulate and compelling and interesting. And can and I say gonna... also that some of those Native Americans are scholars too. So, yeah. I mean, there's not, they're not mutually exclusive. You know, there's, there's uh, Rosalind LaPierre, who is um, a Blackfeet Métis Indian, yeah. also from Montana. She's amazing. Teaches at the University of Illinois, and Jermaine White is an educator and scholar, and so, and and many other people have risen through the ranks of the the Park Service system. And N. Scott Mamaday is a Pulitzer Prize winning poet and novelist, a Kiowa who can speak to the centrality of the buffalo and the Kiowa. He says he says they're our brethren, you know, they're it's our they're in our blood memory. We recognize. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, that's okay. I was just going to say, we want to continue this conversation. Um, there's just so much to say about this film and about your work. We're going to pause here. Uh, we're not going to do DocuView Deja Vu in this segment. We're going to do it in next week's segment. Uh, exciting news for you, Ken. We are going to release this before uh, the American Buffalo premieres on the 16th because we really want people to watch it. Um, so, and then we'll follow up with the second episode. So we're going to close here. Thank you so much for your time. I thank you for coming back next week to unpack this more. It has been an incredible honor. So thank, thank you so much. Thank you. All right, Jason, you want to take us out? And thank you all for listening to Documentary First, where we believe everyone has a story to tell and you can be the one to tell it. Yes, you can. Bye, everybody.